Welcome to the pastor's study, and we are continuing to look at Evangelical Theology 2nd Edition by Dr. Michael F. Bird, and today we are looking at two subjects that are dealing with, uh, kind of continuing to deal with the kingdom and the end times, and we're looking at the final judgment and the intermediate state. So we are looking at what is the final judgment going to look like, and then what is the intermediate state between death and the resurrection, with the where we see the resurrection and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all that, what does that look like? So we're going to start with the final judgment. Ben, what did you think as, as we were reading through that section? Well, and I, th I think something that's interesting for both these sections is that both of them, he is very clear to say the Bible doesn't have the full details on everything that happens right. for either the final judgment or what happens right after you die. Like, Absolutely. there's lots of theories out there, lots of ideas, and there's um, the Bible alludes to a lot of things, but, you know, ultimately it's very hard to come up with a concrete, like, this is exactly what's going to happen, because it just doesn't exist. Right. Um, but in terms of the final judgment, uh, th there's a couple things I found interesting. The first is he... He talks about um, the judgment and the judged and who will be judged. Um, and, you know, when you think about who's going to be judged, you, everybody's like, okay, well, you, you think everybody. Everybody's going to be judged. Christians, non-Christians, the church, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, but I, one of the things I had never thought of before is that there's also going to be angels that are going to be part of this judgment right. process. Uh, and that's something that people don't talk about very often. No, it's not. And I, I thought that was interesting that... That he brought that up in here, and he makes the point that we see in Revelation and in a couple other places that it will actually be the church. It will actually be believers who judge the angels in that time. And I think that's an interesting thing to be looking at and think about, you know, just all of these different responsibilities that God puts on us, whether it is to share the gospel with others, if it is to steward creation or in this place to be the ones that um, work with Christ in judgment over the angels at the end times. And, you know, I think the biggest thing to remember here, and we've talked about this some already, is I think we think about the judgment in terms of non-believers a lot, mm -hmm. but we forget a lot of times that we will stand before that throne of judgment as well, that the church, that believers will be judged. Right, but I think the, and maybe this is the reason that it gets kind of brushed over more often, is that we will have that comfort knowing that Jesus is going to be kind of standing in front of us, taking the brunt force of, of right. the judgment. We, you know, we don't have to fear judgment because we know that our sins have already been forgiven. We know that we have been justified. We know that we have been right. regenerated, but... We will stand before the throne, and we will see our sins, and we will see our good deeds, and we will see all of that, and we will receive just rewards because of what we have done for God. We just will not receive the punishment mm -hmm. for our sins, whereas right. non-believers will, you know, it, it talks, you know, there will be praise for the good things that they have done, but they were all... But it, it is not going to overwhelm the punishment for their unbelief. Yeah, absolutely. And for their sin. 
And I think that's, you know, that was kind of the, the most interesting point that I thought he made in there was just that reminder there that there is going to be that judgment for us all, but those that have, that are following Christ, those that have been justified don't have to fear judgment, mm-hmm. even though we know that it is going to come. What did you think about what he talked about with judgment as the victory of Christ? Well, I thought that was uh, that was interesting because he mentions there's there's been multiple judgments throughout history, whether it's been individual people like David or groups of people like the Israelites. There's been times where God has judged people and you know dished out good things, bad things, bad choices, good you know whatever the the situation was. Um, but I think the idea that this final judgment, this this kind of culmination, the judgment of all judgments, uh, is, is really a, it's, it's Christ's judgment. It's, it's, it's his kind of, uh, coming to fruition, so to speak. Right. And he really, I mean, it shows the truth of who he is, right. you know, that he is the son of God. And those that did not believe that they, they finally come to that understanding at that point. You know, that's that idea that every knee shall bow. I mean, it will come to that day and it is, should be a sense of comfort for those of us who are in Christ because we look and we see the persecution that still goes on in the world and understand what it means to say that, you know, that judgment's left for God, that revenge is left for God. There will be a time of recompense, but it is not for us to deliver. It's for him. Right. And that's where you get into this question that he brings up, um, whether judgment is more about restoration or retribution. And what did you think about, you know, kind of his, where he kind yeah. of came on that? I thought this was really interesting because I, th- I think people usually tend to fall into one of those two camps of either it's, it's all about retribution. It's all about the punishment. It's all about what God is dealing out against uh, the people who have sinned against him. But then there's usually the other side of it where people are like, oh, well, we're going to get all these crowns and there's the jewels and there's this like reward ceremony essentially of like, you know, awesome. Here's the cool things that you did. And, you know, it's these kind of two things. And I, I, I like what he said. Uh, see if I can find the, the quote, but he said something along the lines of the judgment is the, it's like the end of the line for God's mercy i think it was something like right. something along yeah. those lines and that it's where it's where mercy ends and retribution begins and it's this idea that you know yes god's see the the thing i didn't like about the quote is that it felt like there was a limit to god's mercy and and maybe there is but i think you, you, yeah, you did you it. did yeah. you find it okay there is a wideness in God's mercy, but there is also a point where mercy ends and judgment begins, yep. where rebellious creatures are given over to what they desired and their capacity to destroy itself is demolished once and for all. God ends evil and its power, presence, permanence, and personal expression. Right. And so, and that's the thing is like, I almost want to say like, yes, the judgment is about retribution, but it's not necessarily retribution against the people. It's retribution against sin. Absolutely, and I think you're. I think you're right there. It's yeah. retribution against evil itself, retribution against sin. It is obviously, you know, comes down upon the people because they are the one that committed the right. sin, that committed the evil. But it is him getting rid of evil in the world. And I like the way that he puts it there, where rebellious creatures are given over to what they desired. Right. And I really think that's where we understand what is going on here. You know, God's not going to force himself on anyone. Mm-hmm. And if they don't desire 
to be one with him. If they don't desire that restoration, mm-hmm. he's not going to force it on them. He's going to give them over to what they wanted. Right. And ultimately, giving them over to what they want is that sense of, I'm giving you over to being separate from me because you never wanted to be... This, yeah, this was always place. your choice in the first place. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's the way that we want to think about that, and that's the way that we want to look at it. And I, I think, you know, and he, and he kind of leans more to the retribution end, in, or as the way I read it. Mm-hmm. I think we have to understand that it is a both and. Right. It is about retribution, absolutely. But it is also about restoration. It is about cleansing the creation so that it can be remade completely in his image, completely in his rule. And so there has to be that purging of evil from the world, and that's where the retribution comes in. But ultimately, it is about restoration. Well, right, yeah, it's 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 restoration via retribution, retribution yeah. And so, you know, finally, you know, his last section in here is about judgment and the glory of God. And yeah, I think it's, you know, and here's where we just get to that place where... We, he, he writes it really well, kind of walking us through what the narrative in Revelation looks like towards the end. This dramatic scene talking about the people of God um, praising Christ and his salvation. This part of a larger narrative where Jesus defeats his enemies, establishes a messianic kingdom, puts down a final rebellion, enacts a final judgment, and rules with God and the saints in the new heaven and the new earth. God's glory is revealed when creation is purified from evil and humanity's exile from Eden ends. And so we see that the judgment is part of God's glory because it is how he purifies the creation, how he enacts this new creation. And right. I think that's really powerful. And lot, the last sentence in the chapter, God's glory comes by redemption and renewal, and that means putting the world to right, giving evil its due, destroying the weed of sin at its root, and obliterating the spiritual cancer of rebellion. And so we see his glory in the restoration, but it's the retribution that has to come out and bring that Exactly. Out. And, well, and I like how he wrapped it up with this idea that, again, just like everything else that we've learned thus far, the ultimate goal is for God's glory. Exactly. And I think what's interesting, and you said it very early on about this idea of judgment. I mean, we have certain pictures in Scripture, and, you know, for the most part, you know, we're looking at it as Paul talks, you know, through a glass darkly. I mean, we don't understand exactly what this is going to look like, exactly what it's going to entail, but we do need to understand that the judgment will happen. Right. And the main reason that I think we need to understand that we, and as we go into um, looking at the intermediate state and talk about Hades and Sheol and talk about, you know, even getting further into these end times things, we have to understand that there is judgment and there is punishment more than anything to spur us on to share the gospel with those that haven't heard it or mm-hmm. share the gospel with those that have heard it and haven't believed because we want to see people have the same hope that we have an understanding we don't have to fear the judgment. Right. And that's that's what I think is so important about these looking at the end times and understanding these ideas of judgment and what happens especially to those who don't believe so that we can be about sharing the gospel and bringing God's truth using that authority that he has given us to take his word to the people. And 
So as we kind of think about that, that's where we enter into this idea of the intermediate state, where we're asking the question, you know, okay, we all know that everybody is going to have a physical death except for those who are still here when Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. There is going to be a physical death, but those that are in Christ are not going to have the second death. We're not going to have a death that comes after death where, you know, we have that picture in Revelation of being thrown into the lake of fire, which we will look at Mm -hmm. in here. We have this separation completely from God. That does not happen for those that are in Christ. But what happens in that intermediate state in between death and the resurrection, in between death and the second coming of Christ? And that's what we're looking at and asking ourselves the question of with the intermediate state. And he begins by just talking about death. Right. And he quotes Bill and Ted, um, one of my favorite movie series. He says, you know, the Grim Reaper comes in, death comes in and says, you can be a king or a street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper. And that's just true. We're that's all true. Gonna, we're all going to have that. And But he makes the point of, of saying, you know, death isn't what was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. If uh, we were supposed to be living in this state of paradise, living in Eden, we were supposed to be there and have that perfect relationship with God, and that was broken because of sin, and we see that in the beginning of Genesis. And then he talks about death in several viewpoints, first starting with spiritual death. Mm -hmm. Those that aren't in Christ are already dead. They're dead spiritually in their sin. Then we get into physical death, which we already mentioned. Then we get into that death after death. That's what we truly fear. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body, the soul and body in hell. And so that's what we're looking at, really, is, you know, how do we understand how all of this comes together? And what does it mean to be physically dead but we're waiting for the resurrection so what did you i mean i mean it's not i find it kind of not particularly confusing but there's so much going on there what did you think about all that well so are you, are you referring to the 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 types of death are you talking about what comes next okay yeah that's that's pretty simple i think the the idea of this first off growing up I was never taught about any sort of intermediate state. I got through, you know, four years of Bible college and never once heard about this idea of the intermediate state. Right. Um, but when you when you break it down to this idea, like when you die, you don't just shoot up to heaven, call it a day. You know, right. um, that there, that there is a potential that there's a something in the middle ground kind of thing. Uh, I always thought it was kind of this silly idea that the Catholics came up with, and come to find out, they weren't even the first ones that came up with it. Right. So uh, we're gonna get into to all. These things, and I'm actually going to bring up one that you and I have talked about even on mm-hmm. here before that he doesn't really mention here. Um, and I think there's a lot, there, there's so many ways to look at this. And in essence, what we want to do is, is be able to hold on to that, all of these biblical notions. And as he usually does, he kind of begins with some things that don't have a lot of biblical background right they don't have a lot of traction uh the well first off he starts with the idea of the immortality of the soul right right um 
I just totally lost what I was going to say. Well, so what he does there is, you know, he, he talks and says, you know, this is more of a platonic ideal than it is a biblical one. Right. That this came, this came out of more of the the philosophers and the right. you know such like that that thought they were trying to come up with an idea of what happens after death and that's what they came up and with. And so they were saying, you know, the the soul is immortal, the body is not, the body is like a shell. You know, Plato even looked at it as a prison of the soul, mm. and that you know when we die, the soul, and so the Christianized version of that would be when we die, our soul goes up to heaven. And I don't know about everybody listening, but I know I have heard that. Over and over. And oh over yeah, again. yeah. And but that's not what we see in scripture. And he makes a point. I mean, he actually he quotes no scripture in this section because there's no scripture to quote. Right. The only things he quotes are um, he's got the, the thing in there from Maccabees and then some right. other stuff. You know, it's it's not quite. But even then, just saying that they believed in a resurrection body. And, yeah. And not just this whole idea. And you know, so. How does this work? And what he says there, and we'll get to this as we look at some of these other ideas, is there may be a there may be a time for a while where the soul departs from the body and is with the Lord in like a waiting period before the coming back together of those things, but it's not the final state. And, right. And so we can't look at this as being the final state. Then he brings up soul sleep. Which I found this one very interesting in the sense that uh, th- this is a, a pretty widely held belief by some some mainline, not mainline denominations, but, but, but you know, some people um, are still out there. You right, know, yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, right. um, even Martin Luther, you know, said that this, this was, could have been a possibility. Yeah. as well. And essentially this says that, you know, gets into a more Christian version of this, that humanity, there is a complete unity of body and soul Mm -hmm. and as the body quits functioning in death that the soul goes to sleep until the resurrection until our bodies are brought together again with the soul and you know and it he does bring up some biblical grounding for this um talks about how often in scripture sleep is used as a euphemism for death and it says, you know, that you could argue that this implies a cessation of consciousness after death. But then we look at the passages in Scripture that show some kind of consciousness and some kind of activity that those that are dead in Christ have. And when we've got that picture of a cloud of witnesses watching over right. believers and all of these things which negates this idea and says this one really doesn't work either. Because there's too many places that we're looking at and saying that even if we want to bring in these ideas where, you know, Paul and others say that one has gone to sleep, that that is more of a metaphor and a picture of, right. you know, what we, you know, we lay the body down and mm-hmm. it looks asleep than it is trying to make a metaphysical statement, a theological statement. Yeah, I think the the simple way to put this is, although it's not necessarily heretical to say this, it's, it's, it's not the best picture that we could have right. of what happens in between. It just doesn't work really well. Yeah. And, you know, and he points out that, you know, several articles of faith throughout the centuries have completely denied this because it was such a big thing during their day. Mm-hmm. Then he comes up with probably the one that most of us, because you'd already brought I was going to say, I feel like everybody's heard of. Probably think of purgatory. Yeah. yeah. 
And um, yeah, what did you think about how he described purgatory here? Well, I think it's interesting because uh, purgatory, at least within the Catholic tradition, is is not a happy place. No. Um, it is is a place of basically uh, you died, you weren't quite holy enough to make it up to to heaven, so you now gotta wait it out in this in-between state that's not great it's 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 like waiting in line at the dmv and and then you just you until such time as you've grown enough holiness to then make it up to you know or or people prayed you out of purgatory exactly and i mean we see you know you can look at see early on you know he mentions clement of alexandria augustine gregory the great uh aquinas is the one that really puts some meat on it and What's the biggest problem I have with purgatory is it is the works-based system of righteousness that comes into that. Right. And, you know, you can begin to see with the Reformation that so much of what Martin Luther was fighting against has its roots in purgatory because it is... Right. I'm going to pay indulgences for me now before i die so i don't have to go through that or my mom just died how much do i have to pay to get her moved on the way up right and well and that's the thing too is like when you you know consider that purgatory at one point was it was like a solid ish theological idea that the catholic church had however it was eventually exploited and turned into this money making scheme essentially right. in order to because there's the priests don't know how much longer you got to wait in purgatory there's no way that's not how it works right. so the you know the, when they start racking it up and be like okay your total comes to this much like you're paying your bill at a restaurant then yeah it, it, it definitely got a little sketchy but i think it's interesting because there were uh you know, Protestant defenders that were following it too. C.S. Oh, Lewis, yeah. uh, Jerry Walls, like th- there were people who said, you know, purgatory in and of itself is is maybe not the worst picture, but there's some issues with the current Catholic model. Right, and there's there's issues with the way that it's understood, and I think anything that gets us into a works based system of right. salvation, which purgatory absolutely is, right. is really begins to fall apart. Yep. And I think between that and then the idea that purgatory is a is essentially just a torture chamber still is, you know, it's still not a good place. Uh, I think because I think I think if you took those two things out, purgatory, you know, how does it kind of work? And I mean, and it's, you know, and there's this sense and he mentions it in here. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament do we see this sense of an intermediate state that is punitive and cleansing. Right. And so it really just comes down to the fact of if you're in a theological system that is wholly or at least somewhat works-based, then if you hadn't... If we were saying, well, you're kind of saved, you're saved, Mm -hmm. but your works hadn't gotten you into heaven yet, you're going to have to do some works after death to get you there. Right. So that's, you know, when you're in a works-based instead of a grace-based, you can see how this would grow out of that. Right. And that's where we we kind of get in and, and find into all kinds of problems. And so then he finally gets into, let's look and see what Scripture has to say about this intermediate state. And... He talks here about the Old Testament Sheol, New Testament Hades, 
saying that this is what we look at and see if we want to do a you know kind of a word study of this. This is mm-hmm. where we want to look at Sheol and Hades, describing the place of the dead, and you know what happens in that place. And so he brings up several passages of scripture. The first one being the rich man and Lazarus parable in Luke 16. And how did you think about how he dealt with that particular part of Scripture? Well, he he essentially summarizes at the end that it's important to remember that this is a fictitious parable used to help um, explain what Jesus was teaching earlier about this idea of um, the the money and yeah. the dangers of money. Essentially, though, it, it was it would be the equivalent to today's. Uh, you get up to heaven, and Peter's at the pearly gates, and you know, like it's right. it's almost like the setup of a punchline kind of thing. Kind of things that we don't necessarily look at to say what is this actually like, right? But give us some kind of sense of it, at least in the way that the people of that day understood would understand. It. Yeah, that Jesus' point in this parable is to not not to tell us what heaven looks like or what the intermediate state looks like his point is you need to be wary of your greed right (laughs) because this is what is going to be there but i think we do we do see some picture there of this idea that within sheol hades there is a place where the righteous are and a place where the unrighteous are set apart from each other, the wicked and the righteous. Mm. And that kind of is expanded later on. And he also takes another scene out of Luke where he talks about Jesus on the cross telling the thief, today I will see you in paradise. Right. And what does that mean? Because we know that, that Jesus doesn't ascend to the Father at that time. Right. And he well, goes into that intermediate state um, we have that sense that he does that. So what is going on there? And I think that, again, is where we see that sense of there is a paradise. Maybe what we can describe as the bosom of Abraham in what we see in that parable as part of Sheol Hades. And there is just Sheol Hades in itself that is the, the negative side of it, the wicked mm-hmm. side of it. And he's saying, well, you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me. You know, as we kind of think about, we're going to be with me in the good side of... Of wherever we're going. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, And then again, he goes into Acts and talks about how Acts tells us us that Stephen went directly to Christ. And at that point, Christ is risen. Mm -hmm. He is um, at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended. And so we want to look at all of these different things and kind of figure out what is going on here because Paul speaks of some kind of intermediate state. Mm-hmm. We see it very clearly in Second Corinthians 5. Which was actually, ironically enough, what we did this past week in Sunday school was we talked about the, the body, the earthly tent, and, and passing right. away and this new building from God. This resurrection body. Yeah. And then there's like a half a sentence in there that seems to be an intermediate between the two. Right, yeah. And, you know, that idea of being naked and unclothed at home with the Lord in the intermediate state before being clothed with the building from God with the eternal house. 
See, I think the hardest part with all of this is there's no there's no rationale given in scripture for an intermediate place. You know, right. there's there's no reason like so especially if we consider again, go I always go back to that idea of like time and how time is different up there. So if if when we die we go to this intermediate place, how long are we there for? Why are we there? Right. Why not just go right up to heaven? And I think is there the, is there is this a waiting room? Is this a glorified waiting room? Like right. what is the idea here? You know? Yeah, N.T. Wright talks about it as like um, waiting in an airport. No, right. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that's an interesting thing to to look at it in that way. And you know, but here's and this is the one that he doesn't really bring up is what you just said is I think there could be this sense where we look at Stephen and we look at what Paul says about you know away from the body I am with the Lord mm-hmm. is. It could be, and again, everything we're saying here, we're in one of those gray areas of Scripture where it really doesn't lay out concrete ideas on this. Right. It could mean that when I die, I automatically enter eternity with Christ and that the judgment, the second coming, and me being in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus always always happens at the same time. Because I've entered eternity with him. Right. And so I'm no longer bound by time. And I think that's one way to consider this that he doesn't bring up that I think definitely fits into what we can see in Scripture. And the way that he looks at it is, it's kind of one of those things. So you've got the before Christ ascension, you have Sheol Hades, which mm-hmm. is broken up into two sections, one for the righteous, one for the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And then Christ ascends. He takes all of the righteous with him. Mm-hmm. And then after the ascension, all of the righteous go to him, not bodily yet, but in spirit, in soul, go to him and are with him. Mm-hmm. And the unrighteous are in Hades Sheol awaiting judgment. And then we have Christ come back, and we have the resurrection of the saints, and we have really the resurrection of everybody who is coming in there and standing at judgment, and those that are the wicked, those that are the rebellious, those that are not in Christ, go to the lake of fire, go to hell, and that eternal separation from God, Mm -hmm. and everyone else is in their resurrected bodies. Those that are in Christ are in their resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that's a perfectly good way to look at it as well. So it is either there is this intermediate time of being not bodily, but with Christ before the resurrection, and then we are bodily with him, or it just all happens in the blink of an eye, we don't understand it. it. We are entered into eternity like this. And either way, we get to the end of this, which is either way this works, it's a place of rest. It's right. a place of comfort. Whether it is we automatically enter into the bliss of the eternity or we enter into this good place that is not yet the perfect place that happens at the recreation Mm -hmm. we can look and go it is i am with christ and that's the hope that we want to bring to people he talks in the very beginning of this chapter he's like look i'm 44 now and you know my hair's growing gray and and i'm like you know 
I'm 41 and my hair is already completely gray. And, you know, and we start to think about, you know, and he's going, you know, I'm starting to think about more mortality. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we minister to those who are older than us or, or somebody who is sick and, and in going to this sooner, we need to understand and we need to know and we need to be able to answer these questions. And what it comes down to is if you are in Christ, I have, I can very easily tell somebody you're going to be with Jesus. I don't know right. exactly how that's going to look. I don't no. know what that's going to be. But you're going to be with Jesus. You're going to be with the Lord. Or, or if nothing else, things are going to be it is so much better. It's going to be a good thing because you are with him. What does that look like? I don't exactly know. But I know that you are going to be in fellowship with Christ. You're going to be in continued fellowship with all these believers who have come before you. All those that you know. There is going to be this togetherness and this unity. And it is going mm-hmm. to be a beautiful thing. And we have hope in that. Mm-hmm. We have hope in that even before we get to what we're going to look at next week, which is the final state. Right. And so we understand that however how this comes together and ever how this works, we are going to be with Jesus if we are in Christ. And that's what we want to be able to share um, with those who are maybe in fear about what this looks like. Or somebody who is questioning, you know, are they wanting to follow Christ? We want to show, you know, here's the alternatives that come about. And so we know, because Scripture tells us very clearly, that we will be with Jesus. We may not know exactly what that looks like. We may not know exactly how that works. But we know we are going to be with Christ. We are going to be with Him. and And it is an active state, a good state, a place where we want to be. Right. And I think that's that's the message that we want to be able to give from that picture there. So, will you close us in prayer, Ben? Absolutely. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we are just able to to discuss and talk. And even though we don't have all the answers, and even though we, we're not sure about everything that's going to happen after we die, we can be uh, comforted and certain that we're going to be with you and that we are going to be at peace and at rest in you. Thank you for this day. Help us to uh, continue to be strong and courageous in all the things that we are dealing with each day. It is in your name I pray. Amen.